Absolutely. Good morning, everybody. Happy Labor Day to you. It's great to see you. Uh, let's thank the band as they uh, wrap up here. That was very sweet and awesome, and uh, they can do anything. I uh, firmly believe it. So um, hope you uh, found that very worshipful. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18 as I put all my stuff where it needs to go. I got my hands full this morning. Um, we will be taking communion today. Um, please don't freak out if you did not get one of these as you came in. Uh, we've got a team of people that will hand deliver it to you when it is time. So no need to get up and go grab one or anything like that. But I want you to know that that's coming um, and we'll explain all of that. But um, Labor Day weekend, we're glad you're here. The company of the committed, right? We're, uh, we're really glad you're here. We're those that don't own a lake house like me, right? I'm kidding. Uh, but let's, uh, let's jump in. We don't want to, uh, to waste any time diving in this text. Seriously, we're so glad you're here. I got to meet some guests in the lobby before the service started. And uh, God's sovereign, we're so glad that you're here. Um, this is a foundational parable. Um, I'm really excited for us to walk through this this morning. Um, pretty simple story with a pretty significant uh, meaning for us, um, for people of the kingdom. And uh, we've been walking through this series and the parables and uh, we've already seen um, that these parables are stories about God's kingdom. They're not about us. They're not, we're not the main characters. Um, this isn't leadership principles or anything like that from Jesus, that this is what Jesus is teaching us about who he is and what he came to do and his rule and his reign in people's hearts. And uh, we've already seen that it is like a seed. The gospel is like a seed that takes um, all sorts of different responses in people's hearts as it gets scattered. Um, Lord willing, it has taken... Um, root in your heart and producing fruit in your life. But um, once you receive this seed of the gospel, we become sowers of this seed. And we cast out the seed wherever we go, and it responds in lots of different ways. And uh, God is sovereign over that and working in that. Um, we've also seen that the, the kingdom is like um, the Good Samaritan. It is like someone laying down their life for an enemy, um, making themselves vulnerable for the sake to, to bring an enemy back to life. Um, which is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. And now because he's done that for us, we go and do that for others um, to point others to him. And then last week, we looked at probably my favorite parable in the Bible, and uh, we saw that the stronger one is here. Um, that The devil, Satan, um, if you want to listen to the podcast, we talked about the demonic realm and all of those things. Um, but the devil is um, strong. He has authority here on this earth that he's been given. Um, but the stronger one has come and beat him up and taken his stuff. And uh, um, we are in Christ. Um, those of you that have put your faith in Christ, um, the stronger one has taken us back. So uh, let's read this text. Like I said, pivotal text, and then we'll dive in. Uh, I'm going to read Matthew 18, um, verses 21 through 35. So if you've got your Bible, um, and if you're able to, we'd love for you to stand for the reading of God's word. Um, and then we'll dive into the passage. I'm going to start in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, 
strong words at the end of this passage. God, I pray that we hear the severity of these words, that we hear the strength behind these words, that we hear the warning in these words. And uh, God, I pray ultimately first that we receive the blessing of these words. God, and, and heed the warning as well. Um, but thank you for the gospel on these pages. God, thank you that we can see Christ in this text. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would help me to, to do that, um, to show Christ, um, to, to lift him up. And God, um, he's faithful to draw men to himself. God, there's so many things that I would want to happen during this time. Um, for forgiveness to be extended, ultimately for forgiveness to be received. Um, God, for um, marriages to be mended and families to be made whole again. Um, but God, I can't produce any of that. Um, but Father, I'm grateful that you can. Um, so Father, guard me from error, keep me faithful to your word, and um, teach us during this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. So as we look at this parable, um, I've got to ask, how do you respond when someone wrongs you? Uh, I know different personalities respond in different ways. Some people are time bombs like I am and just kind of take it and take it and take it and eventually blow up. Uh, some of you might be more of a freight train where you just, you know, lash back. Um, others of you are good Christians, right? And you, uh, you pray for them um, and you probably, you know, pray nice things over them. Some of you, if we're honest, you pray um, that bad things would happen to your enemies, um, preferably in public for all to see, right? Um, but we all respond to anger in different ways. And the kind of the level set this morning is that uh, we all sin, and until Jesus returns or we go and meet him, uh, we will all continue to sin, and people will continue to sin against us. Um, so this topic that we're talking about, this parable that Jesus gives us about the kingdom, um, is crucial because unforgiveness, not can, but will end a marriage, it will ruin a family, it will split a church. If we let unforgiveness fester within this body, in our relationships, in your marriage, in your family, um, it will ultimately ruin and separate and implode relationships um, as we know it. If we don't heed this warning in the text. Um, so I want us to see this, but before we dive into the text, let me give you some context to Matthew 18. Um, some of you are familiar with Matthew 18 because it has the uh, kind of church discipline passage in it, and I'll give you kind of a flyover of that. But Matthew 18 actually opens uh, with Jesus talking to his disciples, and he kind of calls for a child to be brought to him because his disciples are asking, you know, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, in his, you know, amazing ways, the disciples are probably expecting an answer of, you know, someone who does all these amazing things and all. And what does Jesus say? He says, bring me one of those children. He says, whoever becomes like one of these children is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever is humble and lowly, and, and especially in light of this parable he's about to give us, um, think about the faith of a child. If I went up to one of your children, as soon as they got out of High Point Kids this morning, I said, hey, guess what, Rowan? Your parents are gonna take you to Disney World tomorrow. Um, his Troy and Caroline would be really, really upset with me, right? Because children believe those things, right? I said, hey, I'm gonna give you a million dollars. Oh my goodness, are you real? Like, no, I gotta go tell my parents, right? Same, same thing goes spiritually, though. If I go up to a child and say, hey, there's a God in heaven who would forgive all of your sin in your young life, the sins you've committed and all the sins you're ever going to commit, that Jesus Christ would go to the cross for those things because he loves you and wants to be with you and have eternity with you and all of those things, wants to have a relationship with you, a child would receive that. But what happens when we get older? Nah, there's no way, right? You don't know what I've done. You don't know my story. You don't know what I do on a regular basis, right? There's something about the faith of a child that takes God at his word, that Jesus calls us to, that he grabs this child and says, unless you become like this, gentle and lowly and humble and taking me at my very word, that's how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. It's not what you do, it's who you are. It's that you love me and you receive my love and you receive my forgiveness specifically in this passage, and you take me at my word. Um, let the children preach to us this morning. There's a good illustration in there for all of us about our humility when it comes to, to God's word. 
Um, but he starts there, and then um, he goes from there eventually to um, how do members of the church, how do brothers and sisters in Christ deal with issues with one another, which is gonna prompt Peter's question when he says, okay, Jesus, how many times do I have to do this, right? Because Jesus opens up in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, talking about what happens when someone in the church, when a brother or sister in Christ sins against you. Here's what you do. You go and tell them their fault. And Lord willing, they'll repent and they'll acknowledge it and things will go well. But if not, you grab another brother or sister in Christ and then you go and approach them. And if not, then grab some members of the church, grab some elders, grab a pastor and go to them for the, for the purpose of reconciliation and for them to, to see what they've done and for you to own what you've done and for repentance and reconciliation to happen and then to get the church involved even further if that does not happen. So Jesus sets the scene there and we'll teach through that one day, but not what we're teaching this morning. And then naturally, after Peter hears that teaching, he asks a question, and he says this in verse 21. It'll be on the screen. It says, and Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you know, I praise the Lord for Peter because Peter asks all the questions that most of us are thinking, right? Um, Peter is like the guy that, you know, when you put a lot of effort into an event, the person that shows up and he's like, hey, what time is this over, right? Um, Peter's asking for the minimum amount to pass, right? How many times do I have to do this to, to pass, uh, which is very Peter. Um, you know, Jesus opens up in this teaching and Peter says, hey, Lord, how long do I have to do this, <laughs> right? That's his first question. And I can resonate with that. Hey, when is this over? Um, how long is this thing gonna last? What's the minimum amount that I have to do in order to pass? And then Peter offers up a number and uh, he offers up seven times. Hey, Lord, do I have to do this seven times? And uh, many scholars and theologians believe Peter was kind of exalting himself here, which is um, never good in front of Jesus. Um, Jesus even said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And you see Peter trying to kind of prop himself up here like seven's a great number. Like it's got lots of you know, spiritual um, symbolism there. It means you know, being perfect or complete. Um, he actually kind of took what the scribes and the Pharisees you know, the scribes and the Pharisees of those days were always trying to measure things, right? They were always trying to add to the law. They were trying to make sure that on the Sabbath, you knew exactly how much you could pick up. And they totally lost the heart of the law in that, that you could only walk so far before you were breaking the Sabbath. And you couldn't, you know, pick some grains of wheat and eat and stuff on the Sabbath. Or, you know, Jesus, heaven forbid, he healed someone on the Sabbath. You can't do that. You're working now and you're breaking the Sabbath and totally lost the heart and now you've got the scribes and the Pharisees and they're measuring how many times you can forgive. And they actually misinterpret this passage in Amos, which we won't have time to dive into, um, but they were teaching that you had to forgive someone three times. That was it. You were a good, God-fearing man or woman if you believed someone three times. So Peter takes their number and he doubles it and then he even adds one. And he's like, seven times? And Jesus responds with this. Jesus said to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Your translation may say seven times seven, which is the same thing. But I wanna be clear here, Jesus doesn't actually mean 77 times. He doesn't mean, hey, just whatever your tally list is, just make it you know, 74 blanks longer. You know, Open up a spreadsheet on all of the people in your life in case they offend you and just make the cells you know, the, the rows go down 74 more times. And then on the 78th, divorce, you know, cast them out of your life. No, it's not what he's teaching. He's using hyperbole here. Um, Jesus often used this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Did Jesus literally mean to mutilate yourself when you sin? No, but he's using that excessive language to tell us uh, to communicate a really strong point that as believers, we have to go to war with sin in our lives because it can grow and fester. And you know, James tells us that it ultimately gives birth to death, that it leads to death in our relationships, death in our lives, death in our soul, all of those kind of things. He also said at one point in his ministry, Jesus said, um, whoever doesn't hate their mother or father um, is not worthy of me. Did Jesus mean that a requirement to follow him is to hate your parents? No, but he's talking about if, if following him means that you walk away from your biological family or you get cast out of your biological family, then that's, it's worth it. Then that's what he's called you to do. Uh, we have people in our congregation 
who at the expense of following Jesus and finding the greater treasure were told by their biological parents, you are no longer my son. And that command, that passage in scripture rings way more true to them than it does in our culture today. But he's using hyperbole here. So he's not saying literally you have to forgive someone 77 times. He's not saying that at all. That's religion, right? Peter wanted a list. He wanted a minimum list. Scribes and the Pharisees wanted a list. And Jesus doesn't point them to just a longer list. There would not be marriage in the Christian church if you only had to forgive your spouse 77 times and then you left them, right? There just wouldn't be. That we will sin against the people we love, uh, sins of commission and sins of omission, way more than 77 times in our lives. I can promise you that. I think I'm pushing 80-something this week, right? Um, we will do it all the time in our tone, in our attitude, with not keeping our word. If you just think about all the things that you um, commit that are sinful towards the people you love, but then the things that you omit, the things that you don't do or forget to do or should be doing that you're not doing, right? The list is way longer. We need a bigger list than 78. And the good news is Jesus is going to point us to that. And in fact, if you want kind of the gist of the parable, what Jesus is gonna say is you forgive others as much as God has forgiven you. If you wanna know the, the amount, think about how much God has forgiven you and then do that, right? It's indefinite, it's forever, that we would be marked by forgiveness. So he says this in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. So Jesus just breaks out into this parable. Peter, in light of your question, let me give you a picture of the kingdom. Let me tell this story to communicate this higher meaning. And he says, therefore, in light of this question, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, we need to identify pretty quickly before we get confused and start interpreting this parable in our own way. I just wanna be clear, you and I are not the king. All right, Jesus isn't talking about how we respond to our servants or the people in our lives. Uh, we're not the king. Jesus is the king in this story. Um, God is our king, we are his servants, and the gospel and the Bible is true that we are going to settle accounts with God one day. That every single one of us will settle accounts with your maker, whether we acknowledged him as our creator in this life or not. Whether we acknowledged him as the Messiah, the promised sent one of God, who came to die for our sins, or we totally gave him the stiff arm our entire lives. Every single person is going to have to settle accounts with God one day. Every knee will bow. Everyone will face Jesus Christ one day, and he will settle accounts. So you've got this king who's settling accounts with his servants, um, and the fact that we are all going to face God one day in our own flesh is bad news, right? Because Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned. We've established that, that even if it was just between us and someone we love, that we're way in the hole more than 77 times already, that we are in trouble. And all of us have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of our sin, what we have incurred and earned from our sin is death. That is what we deserve. You and I are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And we are rightly, we talked about this last week, deserving of the justice and the wrath of God. We are. We are, that is what we have earned with our lives, by nature and by choice. We are deserving of God's justice and his wrath, and we have a debt that we cannot pay. But I wanna be clear <clears throat> about who the debt is to. Um, have any of you seen the movie uh, Chronicles of Narnia before? Um, I love the books, I love the movies but I want you to see something in the movies that is theologically wrong because I want you to make sure you see it, especially as you're walking your kids through these books and these movies and those kind of things. If you remember The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund you know, turns from his brothers and sisters and ends up with the White Witch and following her and disobeying Aslan. And you see kind of this movie, the resolution comes because Aslan, according to the deep magic, has to pay a debt to the White Witch which is where C.S. Lewis got this one wrong, is that you and I, because of our sin, Jesus doesn't owe the devil a debt. He doesn't owe the devil anything. Jesus didn't die to pay off our debt to the devil. 
And you see that picture kind of depicted in those movies, that our debt is to the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God. That's who we owe. We don't owe Satan anything. That we owe God because we have sinned against him. He has created us for his glory. And Paul just told us that we all fall short of God's glory. That we have, like Romans 1, we've suppressed the truth about God. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That God is holy and righteous and just. And that is bad news for us because we are sinners. And we owe we have a debt to him because of our sin. That's who the debt is towards. It's not towards Satan. The cross wasn't this divine you know, payment from God to the devil. It was God satisfying his own character, his own justice and his holiness and his righteousness. And we talked about this last week, that we all crave justice. We want God to do what's just. He would be a terrible judge and a terrible God if he wasn't just. That the good news of the scriptures is that God does not let sin go unpunished. When he reveals himself in Exodus to Moses, that he says that he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and kindness, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So how in the world can God be just and holy and righteous, but also um, merciful and gracious and compassionate and not let the guilty get off? Through the cross, that God satisfies his holiness, he satisfies his righteousness in punishing sin, but he is also gracious and merciful towards humanity. Does that make sense? But he's not paying a debt to the devil, and I wanna make that clear. In this parable, it's the master, it's God, it's Christ that we are in debt to, and it's the master that forgives the debt, not Satan, not the devil, not the white witch, not anybody else. Um, So he says this in verse 24, Master wants to settle his accounts with his servants. And then it says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now this would not shock us today like it would um, the ancient Israelites when they heard this, um, the Gentiles when they heard this. Um, We see the number, we see thousands all the time, right? We see people like Musk who've got billions and those kind of things. Numbers that are in the thousands don't shock us, but many commentators actually believe that um, the the word that they use here in the Greek um, literally was like the the greatest quantifiable number that they had. It would be like Jesus saying a zillion dollars, right? We don't know what that is numerically, but we know it's something we can't pay, right? This is what Jesus is getting at here. We don't know how much it is, but we know it's impossible to pay. And that's true biblically with our sin. It is impossible for you and I to pay the debt of our sin with our own good works, with being a good person. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good you and I become, we cannot pay it. We are dead in our sin, we are without hope, and left to our own devices and our own good works, we will never satisfy the wrath and the justice of God with our own good works. We will never produce a a good enough work or a good enough series of works to ever be worthy of God's love. You and I can't remove our own sin. We can't produce enough good works. So look at the next verse. Um, Jesus even tells us this. It says in verse 25, and since he could not pay, exactly where we find ourselves, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And this is God being just towards the servant. We have to ask the question, the servant was in debt a zillion dollars. Whatever he did, we know in our situation, that's because of our sin. Is God just in holding that person to his debt? Is God wrong to do that? No, he is perfectly just in holding that person to pay his debt. He's given the servant exactly what the man deserves to be sold and to pay off his debt which is bad news for us, right? And we say this all the time, we don't want God to give us what we deserve. We have a very misconstrued, you know, line of thinking about what you and I deserve. We do not want God to be fair with us and give us exactly what we deserve, we just don't. And praise be to God that this is not how the master responds. But this is bad news for us because we all deserve to be eternally separated from God and eternally paying for our sin and payment for sin to an infinitely holy and eternally holy God is eternity in hell. 
That's the just punishment. That's what we deserve. It is. And there are bad theologies out there that uh, believe that, you know, those that did not receive Christ and put their faith in Christ here on this earth, that they only go to hell um, until that they've paid off their debt to their sin in this life, and then they eventually all get to go to heaven, and we all finally get there once people have gone to hell for long enough to they've paid their actual debts. That is not what scripture teaches. That is actually saying that we're not all that bad and God's not all that holy. If you and I, in our own, in some period of time, could pay off the debt that we owe God. God is infinitely and eternally holy in one sin, towards an infinitely and eternally holy and righteous God deserves eternity separated from him. Does that make sense? So this idea that some people go there and then they pay off their debt and then we all make it in the end is not biblical. Anytime Jesus talks about hell, he presents it in an eternal state. He uses eternal language. We don't want God to be fair with us and we don't want God to give us what we deserve and praise be to God Let's look at how the servant responds in verse 26. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, I gotta give it to this brother. His heart is in the wrong, right place, um, but his method is wrong, right? Hey, you owe a zillion dollars. Hey, just be patient with me, and I got you, right? That's not the response. Now, his heart falling on his face and recognizing that he is you know, without hope <clears throat> and lost and all of those kind of things, but just be patient with me and I'll get you your zillion dollars is not the response that we're looking for. Because left to our own devices, we are without hope. And our only hope is for the master to have compassion on us. It's not that you and I can produce this money to pay off this debt. It's not that you and I can be good enough. Our only hope, hear hear me this morning, we are all sinners and our only hope is for the master to be compassionate towards us. And the gospel is that he has in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And it says this, verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is the gospel. The master looking at our debt, this infinite amount, this debt that we cannot pay, and releasing us and forgiving us that word there, forgiven in the Greek, literally means to release away from. It means to, to let someone off and send them away. That You don't owe me anymore. To forgive the offense. To, to, it's, it's a combination of the word to loose and to, to send away. It's, it's to, to loose them and send them away from the offense and the debt that they owe you. <clears throat> and that's the gospel. It's the master looking down on us in our debt in our sin, in our desperation, in our crying out for mercy, and he responds with compassion. This is the story of the gospel. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is what God has done. Not because of anything good in us, but because of everything good in him. That's the gospel. We are justly in debt because of our sin. We are deserving of his righteous and just punishment. And God has forgiven our debt. He has paid the price through Jesus Christ. And he has satisfied the holiness of God with Jesus's life. And he has satisfied the wrath of God and the justice of God with Jesus's death. He has done it in our place. Jesus has become our substitute if you have been united with him by faith. If you've put your faith in what he's done, his perfect life satisfies God's perfect standard of holiness and his innocent death satisfies God's just and righteous wrath towards sin. We talked about this, but every sin is going to be paid for one day. He will by no means clear the guilty. Every single sin will be paid for, and it will be paid for by the individual, reaping what they have sown and getting what they deserve, or by Jesus Christ in their place as their substitute through faith, the free gift of God. 
But I also want to be clear. And let me just say this. This text and this sermon has been on the, the teaching calendar for three months now. Um, so by no means did we pick this in response to current events in our country. But I also want to be clear that Jesus Christ doesn't just make the debt disappear. All right? That's not how debt works. Jesus Christ just doesn't dissolve it. And I'm not making any political statements here or anything like that, but I want you to see this, that the debt just doesn't magically go away, that someone has to die. Somebody does. There is <clears throat> always bloodshed for sin. It happened in the garden. It happened at the Passover. It happened all throughout the Old Testament. Anytime there was sin, Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He kills an animal and he covers their shame. He covers their nakedness with the skin of an animal. <clears throat> that someone has to die. All throughout the Old Testament, the sacrificial system that's given in Leviticus is blood being shed for sin so that you and I don't have to immediately die when we sin. That God in his grace will give us, um, in his patience, will give us time to see the greater substitute and the greater lamb that would come and shed his blood for our sin. But all throughout the Old Testament, debt had to be paid. Sin had to be paid for. It did. If I give you $100 and I release you from that debt, you come to me and say, hey, I can't pay you back, and I say, hey, all is forgiven, who loses $100? I do, right? Someone pays. Someone loses in the forgiveness situation. Someone absorbs the debt and absorbs the offense. Same thing all throughout the Old Testament. This was the system. Hebrews actually talks about this in Hebrews 9. He says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That the debt had to be paid. God just didn't magically make it disappear. And how did God pay it? God took on human flesh and died the death that you and I deserve. He took the full wrath of God towards sin on the cross in our place. But it doesn't just disappear. Each time someone sinned, something had to die. And I wanna stop there for a second because as we talk about <clears throat> forgiveness, um, I don't wanna act like this is an easy thing. Hey, the Bible says so, Jesus has done it for you. Now just go and do it, like it's easy. Now, the motivation to obey is because of what Jesus has done for us. The motivation to forgive is because Jesus has forgiven us of a much greater debt than any horizontal relationship could ever produce. And if we don't see that, then we don't see the depth of our debt to a holy and righteous God. But I also don't wanna act like, I wanna take your, your history, your, your family, your, your issues seriously. I mean, if you... I would love to sit across the table from you and just share my family. I ended up you know, going through a lot and doing a lot of work um, for the sake of forgiveness, but this is not an easy thing. I don't wanna make light of anyone's pain in here. Some of you are probably walking through some pretty heavy stuff. Relationships are broken. People are broken, people are sinful, relationships are broken. And I don't wanna make light of anyone's pain in here because I wanna acknowledge that this is not easy for some of you someone in a position of authority took advantage of their authority. If it's in your family, if it was in the church, but someone did something that you did not deserve. And forgiveness is not easy because it means that to release them means I have to assume the debt. And that hurts, that's costly, right? This is not an easy thing to do. Someone has to assume the debt. Someone has to pay when there's an offense. Horizontally, when someone wrongs you, when someone mistreats you, when someone abandons you, whatever it is, somebody has to pay. And so many times we love to, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, we have lots of ways that we try to make other people pay for how they've wronged us. But the call to forgive means that you and I have to assume a debt and it does not make it any easy. But I wanna be clear, forgiveness is not pretending that it doesn't hurt. Um, I wanna be really clear that forgiveness is not pretending or acting like whatever they did was okay. We're not advocating for that. Jesus isn't advocating for that. He calls it a debt. He calls it a sin. He calls it an offense. So it's not call it something that it's not. It's not act like it didn't hurt that bad. 
Forgiveness is calling it sin. It's not telling someone that they didn't do anything wrong. Um, we were talking this week with our teaching team, and Chris actually brought up a good point. If you want a good practical tip for, for parenting, he had a rule in his house where if someone offended you, don't respond with, that's okay. The people and pleaser in me always wants to do that, right? When someone, oh, I'm so sorry, oh, that's okay, right? Like, just don't, you know, let's not have any conflict at all. Let me just avoid it altogether. But if someone's done something wrong, don't respond with, that's okay. Don't, it's not okay. Call it what it is. Say, I forgive you, but you don't have to call it okay. I love that he shared that with our team. It's something I need to do because I just wanna avoid the altercation altogether. But no, call it what it is. It's not pretending it didn't hurt. It's not pretending it wasn't the right or it wasn't wrong. It's costly. It's calling it sin. It's recognizing that it hurt. And then it's absorbing the debt and releasing the person. And that is not easy. One bit. Not easy at all. It is so costly. And I wanna be clear too that we have to navigate the balance between grace and justice. And what I mean by that is you can forgive someone of the offense, you could absorb the debt, but it doesn't remove the consequences, right? God, when he forgives us of our debts in Christ, um, so many times when I sin, God in his grace, as Hebrews 12 says, God will allow me to reap the earthly consequences of my sin. He's taken the spiritual consequences away on the cross. He's removed my separation because of my sin from the Father. But in a lot of times, God in his justice will allow me to experience the earthly consequences of my turning away from him and my foolishness and giving in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of my life. He will often do that. So I'm not also advocating that for you to forgive someone means that they don't have consequences, that relationships don't change, that you don't need to put up boundaries for someone that repeatedly especially hurts you or has done something to you, right? It's calling it sin. It's, you know, especially if what they're doing is illegal or something that you need to report. Like, I'm not advocating, please don't hear me say that just forgive them of that offense and move on. No, we can still hold forgiveness in one hand and justice in the other. Those are not competing ideas. Praise God that spiritually, God can hold those two, and we can as well. That he can forgive us in one hand and can still be just in the other. But please don't hear me advocate that it's you know, avoiding a situation or you know, not reporting something that needs to be reported or dealing with something that needs to be dealt with. But as painful as it is, it is calling something sin and then assuming the debt, absorbing the debt and releasing the person. And that is not easy. Um, I have put in a lot of work and I don't wanna say this like I'm there. I'm still a work in progress. I am still figuring this thing out. But there has been some deep-seated pain in my life that I had to put in a lot of work um, for, to get to this point to absorb the debt. And I also wanna say this too, um, and we'll talk about this at the end, but it doesn't always necessarily mean reconciliation. What I mean by that is the person that has offended you might not even accept that they've offended you. The wounds might still be fresh. Reconciliation requires two people, right? Forgiveness requires one. And it might not be the time to reconcile just yet, but it is the time to forgive in light of what God has done for us. You, uh, have you ever heard the old uh, adage that unforgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die? It is a deep-seated, deep-rooted issue that as Jesus is gonna show us and as he's showing us in this parable, um, can harden our hearts to the gospel because an unforgiveness horizontally just shows an inability or inability to receive forgiveness vertically. That Jesus is gonna connect our unwillingness to forgive people horizontally in our lives with an inability to see just how much we've been forgiven vertically. It's a gospel issue, is what Jesus is connecting here. But God forgives our sins on the cross, but he still loves us enough to discipline us when we sin, to allow us to face consequences. And some of that is through other believers. It's never fun when you and I are walking in sin and another believer comes up and in God's kindness and calls us out on those things. It's not enjoyable, trust me. 
but it's a means of God's grace to not let you keep wandering and meddling in your sin. But I also wanna be clear, you know, someone, another brother or sister in Christ with pure motives and brokenness, as we talked about, seeing that their sin is a plank in their own eye and your sin is a speck, and that, you know, changes the way that they approach you and the demeanor and the humility, but a brother or sister coming to you and holding you accountable to God's word out of love and a relationship that's you know, strong enough that can hold that accountability is not church hurt. It's a means of God's grace. There are other things that the church has done historically to hurt people, but God-fearing brothers and sisters who love you and humbly come to you and point something in your life, point to something in your life that they've just noticed because they love you and they do it in a certain way is a means of God's grace. It is a good thing. Just wanted to throw that commercial in. Let's look at verse 28. It says, when the same servant went out, so this servant, fresh in our memory, had a zillion dollars of debt and the master has pity on him. It's the only way he'll ever get released. It's the only way you and I will ever get released is God having compassion on us. And look at what the servant does in verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So you've got a zillion talents, or you've got 1,000 talents, 10,000 talents, whatever the number is, a zillion dollars, and you've got this man with 100 denarii. Hey, you owe me a couple bucks. What does he do? Seizes him, <clears throat> chokes him, and says, pay what you owe. Now here's where, kind of level the playing field. Some of us seize people <clears throat> and choke people in lots of different ways when it comes to making people pay for their offenses. And what I mean by that is some of you are, like I said, are freight trains and just go at them. You, you either fight it, you forget it, you fake it, or you forgive it. Like those are pretty much our options. Some of you fight it initially. You're like this guy who will, you know, not necessarily run and grab someone by the neck and say, you know, you owe me, but you'll start an altercation, right? Hey, this was wrong, this is what you did. You might not always have the best tone or motives, but some of you, this is how you respond. You want vengeance immediately. Your sin has consequences. Parker just said it, and I'm gonna go give you those consequences right in this moment, right? I'm going to make you pay for what you've done. The problem with that is the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. And some of you are trying to take credit for God's vengeance when someone hurts you and are trying to, to bring it a little early when someone wrongs you. It's Romans 12, 19, if you want that reference, where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Um, others of us, forget it. If you're like me, you just wanna avoid it and hope that it just kind of gets swept under the rug eventually or that enough time will go by and um, you know they'll just forget about the offense or time will heal those wounds and those kind of things, uh, which is a total, you know, just abstaining from taking any personal responsibility or anything like that. Um, others of you, and this is what I meant, you fake it, right? You seize and choke and make people pay um, with the, yeah, you know, you're forgiven, right? Bible says I'm supposed to, I got you. But then you slowly just make them pay daily with looks, with comments, with just thoughts in your heart, with passive aggressive interactions, and you will just make them pay until you feel like they have paid off their debt. And the problem with all of these responses is we put ourselves in the place of God and thinking that we're just and that we know when someone's debt has been paid. We know to the, to the depth and the degree of their offense and we're smart enough and we're wise enough that we know when they've paid off that debt. And I'll tell you what, when I owe someone, right, I have one view of how big the debt is, and when someone owes me, it's funny how in my sin, the view of the debt just starts to expand, right? And it never seems to go away. And this is the problem, that we put ourselves in the place of God. We are not just, we are not the master, we are not Lord, we are not infinitely wise and eternally existing. We are not, um, you know, Psalms, says that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. It's Isaiah 55, nine, I believe. Um, but we are not sovereign. We are bad judges. And Jesus is telling us here that you can either fight it 
You can forget it, you can fake it. All of those are putting yourself in the place of the judge or you can forgive it. You can absorb the debt and release that person from their debt and their offense to you. So what happens to this man? Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Where have we seen that line before, right? Jesus strategically picks the same line verbatim that the first servant said to the master and got a response of mercy and compassion. This other fellow servant, we're not even talking about a master and a servant, we're talking about two servants here. One's offended the other. This person is not a master, he's not a lord, he doesn't have all of these things and he will not repay. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you back. And this is where you and I forget the gospel, right? This man doesn't respond with forgiveness. And here's, you know, I don't want us to, to speed by that. This is us, right? We love mercy when we are the one who is offended. We love it. When I've offended you, I am a big preacher and proponent of mercy. When I'm the one who's offending, I love grace. But when I'm the one who's offended, I start preaching justice, right? It's funny how this changes in our hearts all the time. We want grace for me, but no grace for thee. We want kindness and mercy and patience for us. And it's so funny and ironic how we're quick to not extend that to the people we love the most. As soon as they do that thing or say that one line or act that certain way or bring up that certain topic again, we just instantly make them pay. Over and over and over again. Grace for me when I've wronged you, but not for thee when you've wronged me. And we are unwilling to forgive because one, we either think our debt to God is so small that we can work it off or we think that we have to be good enough for God to forgive us. And then we start to expect other people to do that too. But you see this person, verse 30, respond with, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And I just think this is interesting. Notice that it's not the master who notices first. And I'm sure the master being God knew, but it's the fellow servants go, whoa, this isn't right. Praise God for the church. Praise God for the, the people in our lives who will call out when we are being unforgiving. You see these fellow servants go, whoa, 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 okay, we just saw what happened. Like we saw the debt, the depth to which you owed the master and he forgave you and now you're you know, choking this guy for a couple bucks and they're calling it out. Hey, this is not right. The master is not gonna like this. This is not how he does things. Praise God for the church. You say, hey, this is not how the gospel does things. This is not how the Lord has acted for us. So the master shows up in verse 32. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So we see the one who did not extend mercy and forgiveness showed that he had not truly, at the heart level, understood and received genuine and true forgiveness. And Jesus explains this in verse 35. He says, so also my heavenly father, and this is an important verse, I want you to see this. My heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not give your, or do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus saying here? Is this a workspace thing? That hey, I have to go and do these things for God to forgive me? No, it's not workspace. We're not forgiving others to earn God's forgiveness. But when we forgive others, it shows that we've received God's forgiveness. The proof in the pudding that you've truly received the grace of God is the grace that you extend to others. If you habitually do not forgive and do not show grace to others, I would greatly call into question if you've ever, ever received it yourself. If you've ever understood the debt that you owed God in your sin and what he has done on your behalf. We're not forgiving others to earn it, we're forgiving others because we've received it. God will deal with you the way that you deal with others because the way you deal with others shows what you really believe about how God has dealt with you. Does that make sense? We're not working for God's forgiveness here. 
but the forgiveness that you extend is the same forgiveness that you receive. And if you've never received forgiveness, then you will be marked by someone who does not extend forgiveness regularly. Jesus taught us to pray this, Matthew 6. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses. What's the next line? As we forgive those who trespass against us, right? That this is all throughout the scriptures. This is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. So when we struggle to forgive, it's not because we have a problem giving forgiveness. Jesus says it's actually because you have a problem receiving forgiveness. That when I don't wanna forgive you or my wife or my brother or sister, it's actually because I've forgotten the gospel. I've forgotten the depth to which I've received forgiveness. That when we have a forgiveness problem horizontally, it's because we have a receiving problem vertically. That when I'm unwilling to forgive and I wanna make people pay and I wanna go out and dish out consequences, it's because I have forgotten what my Savior has done for me. It's a receiving forgiveness problem before it's a giving forgiveness problem. And if your life is marked by regularly and habitually not showing grace and mercy and forgiveness, I would question you and cause you to look at scripture and wonder and think about if you've ever actually received God's forgiveness. I would. And here's the gospel. God absorbs the debt. God has absorbed your debt if you are in Christ. Jesus Christ has come to this earth. He has taken our debt. He has paid for it on the cross Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ has absorbed our debt. What I love about this is, when, you know, one of the greatest verses on forgiveness is as us, symbolically, as you and I, as humanity, as physically, you know, Roman soldiers and scribes and Pharisees who are crying out that as Jesus was being tortured on the cross, what's the prayer that he says to the Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's, it's hard to encapsulate in the English, but that word said in the Greek is actually in the imperfect tense. It means that Jesus was saying, like repeatedly. Like as they ripped out his beard, he's crying out, Father, forgive them. As they're mocking him, as he's hanging there on the cross, he's crying out, Father, forgive them as they're nailing his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross, so he's saying, Father, forgive them. As they're piercing his side and mocking him and yelling at him and calling him, hail, king of the Jews, and putting the crown of thorns on he's crying out, Father, forgive them, over and over and over again. As my sin and as your sin was nailing him to the cross, what is our savior crying out? Forgive them. As we were incurring sin, Jesus Christ was forgiving sin on the cross. I wanna give you this story and then we're gonna respond uh, with communion. We're gonna respond um, by remembering the cost of our forgiveness. Um, anybody ever read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom? I think I've shared the story once before. Um, but Corey Ten Boom um, grew up in Poland. Um, her father owned a watch shop. This is a true story. And um, you know, she lived with her aunt and mom and um, her brother moved off and went to school and got educated and those kind of things. But she had her sister, Betsy, and um, essentially World War II happens and Jews start being persecuted and killed and murdered. And uh, in Poland, this family, the 10 Booms, decide that they're gonna take in Jewish families. They're gonna take in um, Jews that are hiding from Nazi Germany. And um, there's hundreds, um, as, as estimated, of, of Jews that were you know, taken to safety from and by means of Corey Ten Boom's house and her home in Poland. Um, but they eventually get caught. Um, Corey and her family get caught, and um, her and her dad and her sister, um, her mom had died at this point, her aunt had died at this point, um, get taken to a concentration camp. And um, you can read the book. I don't wanna summarize the whole book. It's an incredible book, but she's a believer and the Lord is sustaining her and getting her through this, and it, but it's not absent of struggle and heartache. And um, in the concentration camps, her father dies a couple weeks before she leaves and gets released. Her sister dies. And um, Corey, after she is, you know, God sustains her life. She, um, is, you know, eventually gets released from the concentration camps when the war ends. And um, she is a believer and starts traveling and preaching in Germany. 
And um, she tells this story towards the end of her book where she meets one of the prison guards who stood at the door to the showers in the women's barracks in the concentration camp as all of the women would go to shower and would berate them and would make fun of them and would abuse them and all of these things. And she tells this story, and I just wanna read a section um, because she's at this church and the guard comes up to her and starts speaking to her. And she's got this decision in her brain now. How do I respond to this person? You can imagine just visually, this man walks down front to her and starts smiling and talking that lots of different thoughts and emotions and feelings are coming to her mind. And this is what she says. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who has stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain, Blanche's face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. And he said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that as you say, God has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile, I tried to raise my hand. I could not, I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his when he tells us to love and forgive our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love and the forgiveness itself. And that's the goodness of the gospel, is that you and I, when we truly understand the depth to which we've been forgiven, we will naturally be forgiving people. We will. The <coughs> excuse me, the kingdom of God is marked by forgiveness, and the people of the kingdom are marked by forgiveness also. So the question remains this morning is who do you need to forgive? And are you going to forgive? For some of you, that might mean you need to make a call when you leave here. Some of you might need to have a conversation. Others of you, it might not. Like I said, you might be in a situation where you, you need to forgive. It only takes one to forgive, but reconciliation might not be possible or the time yet. Wounds might still be fresh, but do not harbor unforgiveness in your heart. It is a sign that you have not understood the forgiveness and the debt that you owed and to the great lengths of love and compassion that God has bestowed on us. It is costly and it is painful. And until we realize the cost that our Savior bore, then and only then will we be able to bear the cost to forgive. So I just wanna leave you with this. Um, the phrase, no Lord, is an oxymoron. That the scripture is clear this morning. And for us to say no Lord, right? Jumbo shrimp, just two words that don't go together. No and Lord in the same sentence just don't line up. They just don't. It's an oxymoron. And I could appeal to, hey, the word says so, so do it. But I wanna appeal to the cross. Hey, the cross proves so. You've been forgiven. So extend that same forgiveness to others. And we wanna respond this morning just by taking communion together as a church family. This is a physical remembrance that believers get to participate in to remember the cost of the debt, that it didn't just disappear, that for our sin debt to be paid with God cost him the life of his son. It cost him that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed. Um, so if you have an element, you can go ahead and grab it. We're gonna respond by, by taking communion and remembering the cost of our forgiveness 
together. If you didn't get one, we've got some people that can, can hand you one. Um, hopefully, if you want to throw a hand up, we'll make sure we got everybody. Um, but hopefully, they got you as you. Uh, here we go. We've got one coming, coming around. There we go, Jeff. Thank you. Um, but I also want to say this. If you're not a believer in the room, um, we would ask you respectfully not to participate. Um, there is no judgment or guilt or shame on uh, you from us or anything like that. Um, in fact, I respect you even more. If you're like, hey, I don't know if I have you know, believe in Jesus or put my faith in him, um, I have great respect for you in that regard because you're actually being obedient to scripture by abstaining. Um, that Paul tells us um, that we should examine ourselves. I wanna read it to you, uh, Mark. I'm gonna skip to verse 27 over there. It says, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats, uh, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That this is a serious thing for believers and unbelievers. Um, if you're a member of another church, but you're a believer, we welcome you to participate with our church family. But like I said, if you're not a believer, there is no disrespect. Um, but we would ask you to abstain um, from taking in this um, because this is a serious issue. And uh, if you're a believer in the room, we also ask that you take this in a serious manner. Paul calls us to examine himself. Why? Or to examine ourselves. Because we don't want to remember the cost of our forgiveness while we're still meddling with sin in our lives that put Jesus on the cross. Paul would call the Corinthians, before you take this, pray and examine yourselves and see if you're just complacent and settling for and you know making room for the very sins that cost Jesus his body and his blood. Don't take this without first examining yourself and, and repenting of sin in your life. So before we take, um, I'm gonna give you just a minute where you are and pray to the Lord, examine yourself, ask for forgiveness. Um, if you're like me, you know, I need forgiveness as recent as this morning and last night, right? Just asking the Lord to forgive me of my attitude, of my sense of commission and omission, whatever it is. But take a minute and examine yourself because we don't want to remember the body broken and the blood shed as we entertain and meddle with sin that put our Savior there. So take a minute, pray, ask the Lord for forgiveness. For some of you, if you don't know the gospel, you might wanna take a minute and pray and ask the Lord um, to forgive you of your sins. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you put your faith in Jesus' substitutionary life and death and resurrection for you, that you can have life in his name. You can know him and walk with him and have a personal relationship with him. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. All you have to do is put your faith in who he is and what he's done. Some of you might wanna do that in this next minute, but take a minute, examine ourselves, and then I'll lead us as we remember the cost of our forgiveness this morning. says this in First um, Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And hopefully you can find the little film to uh, take off and take the bread. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's 
death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. The scriptures say after they had the Passover feast together, they went out, the disciples and Jesus, and they sang a song together. Um, They just participated in this ordinance that proclaimed the Lord's life and death and resurrection, and then they went out and sang about it. And it's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song and think about our forgiveness. Uh, So let me pray, and then we'll get you to stand and we'll respond together. Um, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. God, thank you for the, the hope that we have in the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would be people who are marked by remembering and receiving your forgiveness first before we ever, God, try to extend it. God, and when we don't, it's because we've forgotten the depth to which you've forgiven us. But God, I pray that this week would be marked by so many conversations of people in our lives looking at us and say, why in the world would you let me off the hook? Why in the world would you absorb this debt? I hurt you. I did something wrong to you. Why in the world would you forgive me? God, our response would be because that's exactly what my Savior has done for me. I had a debt to him that I could not pay. And he paid the debt in my so I'm going to do it for you. He absorbed my debt so I can absorb yours. So God, help us to be people. Help us to be a church who are marked by forgiveness. God, I pray for forgiveness in our marriages. God, that husbands and wives may have some significant conversations after this message, but God, for all all of us to be receivers of your forgiveness. So God, be with us as we sing about it now. In Christ's name we pray.